Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, today we have somebody joining us that I used to work with. Chris Sakalakis was the CEO of StubHub for eight years, and he and I worked together for about four. I've always been so inspired by all the things Chris has accomplished. He was born to Greek immigrants, was the first person in his family to graduate from high school. He went on to Penn for his undergraduate work. I'm sure we'll hear much more about his journey when I finally give him the chance to speak. But beyond all of that, what I've always most admired about Chris is his tenacity. There is exactly nothing in his life that he does in sort of a half-assed way. If he's in, he is all in. And I have kind of a funny story that might embarrass Chris a little bit, but Chris is known to be a little bit fastidious about working out and eating healthy. And I know there's some stories about trying to get his family to eat healthier. But at work, you know, it was always seeds and nuts and the rest of us were eating, you know, Twinkies and Diet Cokes or something. And, and, you know, Chris would kind of roll his eyes when the rest of us were eating something terrible and he would, he would go on eating his fruits and nuts. But there was this one day and something not great happened at work. I turn around and there is Chris T, as we used to call him. Chris is eating an ice cream bar. And I was like, the world is ending. What is happening here? (laughs) It was was really funny. And so that's what I mean, like this tenacity and this kind of all in. And when something is a little bit amiss, it just really throws you. But at any rate, I'm super excited to have Chris here. He's had a super interesting history, lots of great work experience, lots of really interesting personal experience. He's now the CEO of Kiva, which is a global nonprofit focused on expanding financial access to underserved communities. But really, Chris, you know, that's just sort of the high level sketch, if you will, of your background. And I'd really love to hear from you a little bit. So grateful you're joining us. Um, and I'd love for you to walk us through your journey. How did you get here? Let us know what's, what's, what brought you to where you are now. Uh, thank you, Anne. I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> Was it? Do you remember that day that I'm talking yeah, yeah. about? Yeah, <laughs> no, I remember it. I also remember your reaction because I didn't didn't count. On I was that. like, "Are you okay?" Yeah. yeah, I think I went down to the lobby. There's like a there was a little sundry store in our building, and I and I got yeah. some ice cream because I just needed I needed some chocolate, and it was a hot day. Yeah, uh, I do remember that day. <laughs> thank you to you and Sherry for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. And thank you for the kind words too. Yeah, so my story, you talked about my parents, they, they immigrated from Greece. I grew up in suburban Chicago and part of my experience early on was I wasn't quite of one culture or another, mm. meaning mm. I was a Greek kid growing up in the US. So when I went back to Greece, my cousins called me the Americans, you know, we, my brothers and I were the Americans. And when I was in the U.S. Certainly, when I was younger, we were the Greek kids, and if it was time for dinner, my mom would start yelling outside of the front door our names in Greek: Christophe, Michali. <laughs> and and it I, it just felt like, hey, I didn't really fit in, and it it felt mm-hmm. pretty awkward for me. Early on, I found academics was a way that I could fit in. That I felt like, okay, this is something I could do well because I was horrible at sports, athletics, anything like that, and that became my focus and the focus of my perfectionism, frankly, in high school and even in college. But through that, I was able to, after graduating from Penn, I was able to go work at Bain & Company and 
I spent about six years there working in Boston initially, and then in Eastern Europe. So I worked in Warsaw for three months and then Russia for a year, and then went back to the London office. And I had this itch to work overseas because I had this international background. I got my Greek passport and Bain allowed me to transfer. And I kept thinking of my life at that point as scratching that itch. I have these things I want to do. And I had friends who were working in Poland and I thought that wouldn't that be great. And when I got shipped off to Poland, people were like, oh my God, that's so horrible. And I said, no, no, this, <laughs> this is what I wanted. And similarly in Russia as well. But being exposed to those different cultures, especially in, in Poland and in, in Russia, being in taxi cabs, going from place to place and not being able to read anything or understand the language, I, it brought me back to what it must have been like for my parents who, mm. who came to this country, to the United States without any knowledge of English. And it gave me some empathy for what they went through. My parents pointed out to me, however, that they didn't work in a nice office where everyone else spoke their language <laughs> like I did. <laughs> but they certainly had it harder than I did. But it, it did allow me to understand those different cultures. It also allowed me to understand what we took for granted in the United States, not just from an infrastructure standpoint where... Mm. You could send a fax and it would actually go through because the telephone lines were good. This is pre-internet. But also, you know, there are numerous obstacles. This didn't work or that didn't work logistically. And you just had to figure it out and get your way around it. And so that, that type of training working in Russia helped me when I moved to back to the United States to work in the internet space. And this was in 96. So I was, after six years at Bain, I was pretty tired of being an advisor and telling others what to do and not seeing it get done. And I got really interested in technology and the internet in the, starting in the summer of 95 when Netscape went public. Most mm. of your listeners won't remember Netscape, but <laughs> Netscape Some was, of us do. Yeah. I remember Netscape. Yeah, but Netscape was the first big internet browser. And I remember reading about it in the Financial Times, like, wow, this is really fascinating. So I used the dial-up modem on my Bain laptop and signed up for... <laughs> CompuServe and started surfing the World Wide Web. That was the term we used. And I got really fascinated. <laughs> I would tell people I really want to work in the internet space. And they would say to me, oh, yes, yes, the internet. We must check that out. That's that's what I heard from my <laughs> English friends in 95, 96. I'm just going to jump in for one second and say, as you're telling this internet story, I had a pandemic project of cleaning out my attic. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think I threw it away, but I found a book in there, a little soft-covered book that said, The Internet, A New Way of Marketing. <laughs> <laughs> a new way. Yeah. <laughs> a new way of no, marketing. At the time, there were books about one-to-one -one marketing using the internet. That was the idea. You, you could right. personalize all marketing to some extent that's true now. Yeah. So the internet held this great promise and I could see that at the very least it would make people's lives easier, more efficient. And I just really wanted to be part of it. I just thought it was a cool thing. And so again, it was one of the itches I wanted to scratch. I wanted to work at an internet company. I wanted to help build a great internet company. That was, that was my desire at the time. So I, I moved to San Francisco in 96 and I quickly found some consulting work with an ex-Bain person at, at a startup called Big Book that, that did online yellow pages. And then I found a group of investors who wanted to start a business in the internet space. One of the investors was the Washington Post Company. And, and the general idea was to make it a, a national classified advertising market. So we looked at a bunch of things. Eventually, we I was the only employee. So eventually, we decided to do charity auctions, but online. 
but this is in 96, 97. So it was very early days. I went around trying to get charities to work with us on this internet thing. And while we did do, I think, about 12 auctions over the course of a year, it was very much an uphill climb. And while everyone else was getting funded and all this money was coming into the internet space, I was completely unsuccessful in raising any additional money. And after about a year and a half and hiring four people, we shut it down. So it was my first attempt at being a CEO and and I was a complete failure. And <laughs> that's just how it went. And again, that was the niche I wanted to scratch. I really wanted to be CEO of a startup and I did it and I was like, okay, well, I learned something from that. And that was tough. But what was tougher was afterwards trying to find a job at a more established technology company. I, mm. I didn't have my MBA. And so people are like, well, you don't have an MBA and you don't have a lot of internet experience. Like I was just running an internet company for a year. Like how many people have internet experience beyond 1996? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I just, I just kept being told no. And so I, I ended up just doing consulting work on my own, helping people write business plans and trying to take advantage of some of the experience that I had. Uh, and I did that for a while and it was okay for a while until about 2001 with September 11th. And then for about a year and a half, it was pretty lean days. So I found myself at the beginning of 2003, my wife was pregnant with our first child and I really had no work coming in. She wanted to take six months off, three months of it would be paid. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, <laughs> How are we going to pay the bills? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was going to yoga every day, but that wasn't going to pay the bills. So <laughs> darn, <laughs> I'm ripped, but I can't do anything. So <laughs> I got lucky. I, I had contacted a, a former Bain colleague, Michael Deering at, at eBay a few months before. And we'd been talking back and forth for about six months before he finally said, Hey, I got something interesting for you. Why don't you come on down? And he told me about a, a strategic issue that they had at, at eBay that where they wanted to invest more in a product called eBay stores. And yeah. I said, uh, well, this sounds really cool. He goes, well, the, the job is yours if you want it. And I said, what? I, what? I didn't, I didn't know this was a job interview. <laughs> I thought we were just talking. <laughs> I started in April. My son was born in January. So it literally happened right as my wife's pay would have ended. And so I was able to start and start this great career. And and eBay was that you know first job running eBay stores was probably the best job I ever had because I had a really wow. tight team. There were two people on a team and then a very great group of product managers. And we worked really closely together and we just got stuff done. And we just listened to customers, built out features and just the business kept improving. We kept adding subscribers and adding revenue. And it just felt like the wind was at our back and nothing could go wrong. It was just so great. And it's such a great relief given this sort of Damocles that had been hanging over my head uh, with the birth of my, my son. After the first internet company that, that you started and worked on and didn't work and failed in essence, and really it was just before its time because now it's huge, right? But you know, you sort of said that was really difficult. So I went back to helping people write business plans, et cetera. Tell us a little bit more about that. That must have been more than just a little difficult, right? I mean, this was sort of your baby that you birthed in some ways. Yeah, to some extent, I didn't feel as personally crushed by it as maybe I should have. <laughs> but yes, it was for me, you know, again, I, I was a co-valedictorian of my high school class. I had a perfect GPA at Penn undergrad. I was not the first of the people in my class at Bain to get promoted, but I was promoted to the 
consultant to the MBA level without having gone to business school. You know, I had a series of successes. When I was in Russia, I was running a team of 10 people. I was 26 years old. So I had all of these things that had always gone my way through grit and hard work, and but really just following someone else's program, to be honest. And when I got into a situation where there was no set plan, there was no playbook, I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. And I had been used to managing people at Bain, but the people at Bain were frankly all the same. I mean, they were all super intelligent, hired for their analytical skills, and they were all trained the same to do the same thing. They didn't have a different set of skills the way that you have in a company. So I had this realization, like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, at the age of 29, after everything had gone well for me, I didn't know how to make this thing successful. Doug Carlston was the chairman of of the company. He was the co-founder of Broderbund and a great guy. And he would give me some advice, but it was very subtle, uh, mostly because, you know, I'm such a pain in the ass to work with. And, (laughs) you know, he's like, you know, hiring is a really key, important aspect of building a business. And like, oh, okay. And I didn't have to hire people at Bain. You know, there was a recruiting firm that brought everyone in. So I realized there are all sorts of things that I didn't know. I didn't leave from that experience being emotionally or psychologically crushed. It was more the realization that there's still a lot for me to learn. And if anything, humbled somewhat, but I don't want to exaggerate that. It was just, (laughs) honestly, my my view was like, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles, you know, that Interesting. Things things break down. Right. I didn't take it so personally. I like I felt like I tried. And it didn't work. It didn't work out. Yeah. It didn't yeah. work out. And I could be okay with it. I guess I was so full of myself, like, eh, it's not me. <laughs> There'll be something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not me. That's an interesting one. It's not me. Yeah, I, I didn't I mean, certainly I understood that I could have done a lot of things better, but I didn't feel like the only problem with this whole enterprise was me and the way that I did it. Right. I think in retrospect doing auctions online for charities in 1996 and 1997 was, yes, too early for its time. There's a company called, uh, I think Bidding for Good is the name of it, that's for-profit and does that type of work now. I had that realization too. Yeah. So I'm curious about one thing in this story. So I totally get how great it was that you were confident and grounded enough to not be devastated by this, right? And to have some sense of, well, maybe it's before it's time or I didn't have all the skills I needed. But for somebody that up to that point had been a really high achiever, really successful at everything you had done, and you used the word perfectionism, right? That you had channeled your perfectionism into academics. I'm just curious what it was like to realize, oh, wow, I don't know what I'm doing. Or did you even, yeah, did you even realize that at the time? Or is that only in retrospect? No, I I realized it. I realized that I still had a lot to learn. And one of the realizations from it is maybe I'm not the right person to start a company. Maybe I should go Mm -hmm. learn what it's like to actually run a well-run company by going to work for a well-run company, Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to make it up myself. Because the only model I had at the time was Bain. And, And Bain is particularly good at understanding business problems and analyzing them, putting together recommendations. As a company, the way that it functioned in 1996, it wasn't that great. Like the managers weren't great. There wasn't a lot of care given to managing employees. You worked for a manager on a project, and then you went on to another project. So there wasn't a big added incentive for managers to do a good job of managing you as an employee. Mm -hmm. 
So I realized that aspect of it, I wasn't particularly good at. And just the general aspect of how do you manage marketing and technology and these different groups and bringing them together, that wasn't something that Bain did. And most of our clients were more old school. They weren't in the technology space, at least the ones that I worked on at the time. Yeah. So then you find yourself after all of this at at eBay, which is arguably better than than Bain in terms of the way they they treat employees. And you're running this great part of the business. And then something kind of fun happens next. Like what happened after your stores experience? Well, with stores, because of the success we had, I started being given other groups within (laughs) the eBay business. And by the time I got to StubHub, I had six different groups reporting to me. Those groups came to me in odd ways, however. So we had eBay stores, Mm -hmm. which is a stores platform on eBay. We bought a company to do something similar to essentially create an online web store off of eBay. I think Shopify, uh, way before Shopify uh, came out and with far fewer capabilities. That was called Pro Stores. And then I had a a colleague die. Uh, His name was Bob Hebler. He was on the last day of his sabbatical and he was in a bike accident and two of the groups that had been reporting to me during a sabbatical stayed reporting to me. That was a shipping and seller marketing. And then I had another colleague leave the company. And so I got two of her groups. So it was kind of a strange thing where, yes, I got more responsibility, but only because something bad happened. Yeah. And I guess it was a vote of confidence, but at the same time, it was a little odd. So anyway, I had these six groups. One was the developers program and the other was a kind of private label mark uh, auction platform and six great leaders, but the groups didn't really belong together. So I was trying to figure out like, how do I make sense of these? I created a name called the advanced solutions group, which meant nothing to no one. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> and we did that. So what happened at eBay was there is within stores, we, we made a, a product change. It was very popular with our stores customers and controversial in the rest of eBay to the point where many within eBay, many of my colleagues, including Meg Whitman, who was running the company, felt like the change that we made, which affected search results, had a negative financial impact on eBay overall. And that product change lasted for about six weeks and then it got rolled back. So whatever it was, was undone, but there was still this, there, I had, a, I was very defensive about the change. I had some bitterness around it. And there was also uh, other parts of eBay. who felt like I made a really bad judgment, bad decision mm-hmm. as if I made it unilaterally. And, and so my boss, Bill Cobb at the time said, you know, it's probably time for you to do something else within eBay. Like you've done all this great stuff, but maybe you're a little burnt out on the eBay store stuff. So he, <laughs> gently, he says, yeah. so he and he and John Donahoe who's running marketplaces at the time, not quite CEO yet offered three different things within eBay. And one of them was going to run StubHub if the acquisition mm-hmm. went through at the time they were doing the due diligence. So I was given that opportunity. It was brought to me. It wasn't something I had to hustle for or interview for. They offered it to me and they offered it proactively to me. So I'm very grateful to them both for for doing that. And at the time, I really hemmed and hawed between that and a couple of other opportunities. But the reality was, I don't think I would have been happy with anything other than that, because it was an opportunity to run a company and to have a lot more autonomy than I did and not to have to deal with the rest of eBay and the politicking and 
the other things that was involved. And the reality is, as I mentioned or implied when talking about Doug Carlston, I like doing my things my way. And yeah. Chafe had even the suggestion that, that maybe something I did was wrong. So <laughs> this would allow me to kind of be off to the side and that would solve Bill's problem and also solve my problem uh, of wanting more independence. <laughs> I mean, I felt that they trusted me to do it as well, but I think it, the fact that it was a separate company with a separate office in San Francisco meant that I was going to be able to uh, do my own thing. And the rest of eBay wasn't going to have to worry about me because it kind of didn't matter <laughs> to them. It was too small to worry about. So I'm wondering about this chafing thing. You know, you've mentioned it a couple of times and bristling a little bit if somebody suggests that things didn't go as well as they could or, or what have you. And I noticed in one of the articles that Sherry and I read to prep for our discussion that you really talked about taking a deep look at yourself. And so talk to us a little bit about that. What does that included? Is it a little bit easier to receive feedback now or how has that been going? Well, the truth is, I don't think I really started thinking more deeply about myself, and my own motivations until recently, maybe in the last mm. couple of years. And that was precipitated by my leaving of Avino. So at the time, StubHub started, I knew I wanted autonomy, but I didn't necessarily know the, the real motivations behind it. Mm. And, and I'm not sure I really know the, the full motivations behind it now. I, I would say, again, part of it is perfectionism. So if you're a perfectionist, everything you do is perfect. And so how can that be judged or changed or improved? You know, there are times that I was coachable, even when I was at Bain, I got that feedback. But I guess as long as it felt like it wasn't a personal attack, and and I thought a lot of things were personal attacks. And mm-hmm. that was a problem. I, I tell people now, when I was at Bain and I would get my reviews every six months, it was a very, very painful experience for the reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> because everything they brought up, I was really defensive. And everything they brought up, like, I didn't do that. What what evidence do you have of that? Give me a specific example. Is that type of thing? <laughs> so it was, ne- <laughs> it, was ne- <laughs> it was never taken. It was never taken in the spirit that it was given. <laughs> I always felt like these guys are trying to screw me out of a promotion or or a salary <laughs> increase or a bonus or whatever it is, as opposed to like, no, they're actually trying to help you. Right. But it's great you can laugh and smile <laughs> yeah, about yeah. it now. No, but it was painful. Like Bob Bichek, who became the head of, of Bain & Company, ran ran it as the as worldwide managing partner, was one of my managers. And I, I can just remember these like very painful interactions. And he's, you know, he went to MIT and Harvard. He's not like a touchy-feely person. And you <laughs> just see how frustrated he's <laughs> Dealing with me. And the, the funny thing is like the managers I had who were more touchy feely and who are obviously women. So uh, Shira Goodman, who went out to be the CEO at Staples and, and uh, Amy Case, they were much better people managers. And they, mm. they, they had a way to get through to me that these other guys didn't, that these mm. the type A people who are just like me, they had a much harder time getting through to me than, <laughs> than Amy and Shira did. So I'm grateful to them because I did learn some things from what they said and what they told me. But yeah, I think wanting that autonomy stems from this perfectionism. And, and, and frankly, it's, it's a deep level of insecurity. Mm. Why do you need to be perfect? It's because you think that you're imperfect. And so you, mm. you need to correct and overcorrect for that. And if someone is calling out your imperfections, deep down, you realize that they're right. There's an issue there. 
And if you're not secure in yourself and what you've done, then you're like, no, no, don't, don't go there. You know, don't take me down that deep black hole. I don't want to go there. And so it's the, the criticism or the feedback has gotten easier over the years because I've felt more secure when I've felt that the, the success that I was trying to achieve, I felt that that was being achieved. And that that started to happen at eBay with the store success. And then more so with StubHub as StubHub went on after a few years there where I felt like, yeah, we're actually doing really well. But again, my security was being tied more to the financial success of the company, the metrics that I focused on. The, the perfectionism found its way through grades because that was an objective measure of success. Right. So did you get an A or not get an A? You know, you got an A, yes. If you didn't, you suck. So did we hit our goals or not hit our goals? I think Anne Anne will remember I'm very goal-driven. The goals shifted from the grades that I got to the metrics that we used to drive the business. And at and at StubHub, it was not just the financial metrics, we had customer satisfaction metrics and employee engagement metrics. So I was very much fixated, not just was, I'm still very fixated on these specific goals and metrics as an objective measure. Are we being successful or not? And again, to try to counteract any subjective, like, well, yeah, I'm not sure about this or that. I'm like, <laughs> just a bunch yeah, of excuses. Like, Screw you. Here are my numbers. <laughs> so I think it's the chafing at authority is, is really deep down, it's an insecurity. It's not wanting to be vulnerable or even appear to be vulnerable. Yeah. So that's a lot of work to get from, you know, that, that kid just out of school at Bain, not taking any feedback from anybody to being on this podcast and talking about the fact that perfectionism is really rooted in feeling deeply imperfect internally. Talk us through a little bit of that work and how you got there. One piece of it, again, as I said, is I felt more secure with some objective measure of success. I I could let go of trying to be perfect at everything. Yeah. Uh, The other piece of it is when I left the Vino, I wasn't happy about how things ended. I was there a year and a half and was pretty angry. And I was angry when I left StubHub too. Yeah. And when I left StubHub, I went through this process of talking to as many people as I could and finding a an independently owned startup where I could be the CEO and have a large equity stake. And, and I did that, but it took me three years to find that role and the role Mm. lasted 19 months. So the, you know, that math doesn't really work and I'm not going to live forever. So I didn't want to do that again. And I realized also that the anger I had coming out of StubHub did not serve me well, Mm. both personally, or as one of my friends said to me, I think this is probably coming through in the interview process when you talk to people. (laughs) Like, yeah, probably. So I didn't want to live with that anger. And so I decided after I left the Vino that I, I wanted, I didn't, you know, want to be angry all the time. So I went back into therapy and Mm. by back, I mean, I did go into therapy when I was at Bain in Boston, when I was in my early twenties, because I had similar issues, although it was very much focused around working at Bain and what that experience was like for me. And it helped, but I hadn't done it in a long time. I hadn't done transcendental meditation in a long time. I hadn't done a lot of things in a long time. I thought, okay, maybe it's time to go back to it. And I don't want to go back to the same process I went through after I left StubHub. So I I found a therapist and started working on that, started working on mindfulness. I found a program called Positive Intelligence based on a book 
written by Shirzad Shamin. It's positiveintelligence.com. But Shirzad is a fellow YPOer. YPO is the Young Presidents Organization that I joined when I was uh, younger than I am today. And, <laughs> and so I did that program with my wife. And, and part of the positive intelligence was looking at your inner critic uh, and realizing that that's the critic that comes out when you start criticizing other people. And then looking at other things that Shirzad calls saboteurs, things that get in the way of your happiness. And for me, it is perfectionism called the stickler within the positive intelligence. And also this idea of um, always wanting to achieve something, you know, the goal orientation, always wanting to achieve something more. Those are the things I started looking at more specifically. And the program takes you through short two-minute periods of, of meditation of mindfulness as a way to, to kind of reset and rethink how you look at things. And the, probably the most interesting part of the course, and I, I'd recommend it to anyone, is that it asks you to look for the gift. Look for the gift in anything that's happened to you. It's based on this Taoist principle and parable. The basic idea is with anything that happens, it can be viewed negatively or positively, depending on your point of view and depending on what happens next. And so I realized that leaving StubHub and Avino, while I was pretty angry about those things, ultimately, those are very positive things for me because I was unhappy mm. in each place, at least at the end. And they released me from that unhappy place and allowed me to think more broadly about what I want to do next and who I want to be. And yeah. that whole element helped. And then thinking about these two saboteurs, these two tendencies that get in the way of my happiness and then being able to call them out to label them as it is like, oh, that's just my perfectionism or that's just my goal orientation getting in the way. I think those were also helpful in, in helping me. So Chris, one thing I'm curious about that this feels like a really good place to go next is when I was getting ready for our conversation, I came upon an article called A Hard Lesson in Soft Skills. And it says, you said, only half jokingly, that since your wake-up call in 2009, you had gone from, quote, dictator to semi-enlightened leader. <laughs> and if you're okay to share a little bit about what that wake-up call was, I think that's always interesting for our listeners to hear about these moments where we all get that kind of smack upside the head. Yeah. So we we just spoke about what happened in 2019 after I left the Vino and we completely skipped over most of my experience at StubHub. So in, in 2009, I'd been at StubHub for about two years. I got my annual review at the beginning of the year and most of the feedback from my team was negative. The year had not ended well because of the recession starting in 2008. So we were behind on those objective measures that we spoke about. But the feedback from my team was that the team wasn't coherent, working well together, that I had a negative attitude when things went badly. I made things worse, not better. There are a variety of other things in the feedback. I'm sure I have it somewhere if you want me to pull it up. <laughs> but it, it wasn't a positive review. And, and John Danahoe gave it to me and said, look, even the best people out there do things to get better. And the example he gave me was Michael Jordan, since we're both from Chicago and he's a big sports fan. Even Michael Jordan, when he was the best basketball player in the world, still did things to improve his, on his weaknesses. And so he encouraged me to do that. So based on that feedback, I brought in a, a coach 
his name is Barry Grossman, to work with the, myself and the leadership team, specifically to work with me to help me think through how I led. Because I was very much thinking at that time, this is all on my shoulders. I need to make this happen. And I need to tell everyone what to do. And to some extent, I had the example given to me by my father, who never had more than three people working for him and uh, at his electrical contracting firm, where the number one imperative is to keep everyone busy, <laughs> make sure they have enough work. So I started working with Barry specifically about how to manage people and, and how to think about leading as opposed to managing. And he, he gave me a series of books to read, including uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which really talks about mm. changing your management style as you move up and, and manage managers and lead managers. And that started to be helpful. At the same time, I think within a month of getting my review, I met with my cardiologist and had done my, my second stress test in three years because I had a, a leaky heart valve, a heart murmuring, as, as some people would call it. That was mild and you know nothing to worry about. And then he told me, look, we have two points of data over three years, and it looks like you're going to need to have heart surgery sometime in the next two years. Uh, this, this thing is getting progressively worse, and it needs to be addressed. And, and you were pretty young at the time, right? Yes, I was 41 at the time. At the minute he said that, he, I thought to myself, I don't, I don't want my kids to grow up without a dad. I literally thought I was going to die. Mm. But my eyes started welling up, and he's like, no, 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 we've been doing these surgeries for 20 years. It, they have like a 97% effectiveness rate, even with old people. And you're much younger than the average patient. Don't, don't worry about it. So I got that news. I got the, the negative feedback in my performance review all within the period of a, of a month or so. Wow. And I had to kind of sort that out. And so I found a surgeon, planned the surgery in July and started doing this work with Barry Grossman and the team. And then I went away for two months and it's really hard to be a dictator if you're not at the <laughs> office for two months. There's one way to solve it. <laughs> yeah. So what effectively happened was I, I stayed at home and worked on just getting back to general fitness. I was walking around the block initially when we got back from the hospital and then eventually walking six miles a day, but it was, it was slow going. And for two months, I did no work nothing at all. I didn't check in, didn't check email, didn't do anything. And I had a new head of HR start. This was Ann's predecessor, uh, Scott Day. And he worked with the team on kind of get, getting the leadership team to work together. So when I came back, I was a little surprised <laughs> that, wow, all this stuff has been done. We've set the budget. And you know, I'm like, ah, I don't really need to work this hard, do I? <laughs> like like these, these people aren't as incompetent as I've been somehow <laughs> thinking in my mind. I never thought that explicitly, but the way I was managing them was as if they were. And so that was a revelation to me. And the team was working a lot better together. And eventually it kind of found our stride. I can't say that things were always perfect, but it was better. And also in 2009, the, the Yankees uh, opened a new stadium and they, they won the World Series that year. So we had a huge October at StubHub, it was a huge year for us. So after 2008 ending at where we were below plan, 2009 was way ahead of plan. It was it was a record year, and so we ended the year. And I said to my mom, like, this is probably the best one of the best years of my life. And she said, How the hell could you say that? Mm -hmm. Like you were you had this surgery, and I'm like, no, you all of these things improved. Everything has turned around, and and things are better than they were a year ago. But that was a big part of it. But it it, it kind of took that double whammy of 
the feedback and the heart surgery to really change my perspective. Yeah. And like you said, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. <laughs> that's a rough road to travel. Exactly. I mean, and that's the, that's the case often with these perfectly imperfect journeys, right? Like it's not like we would design having shitty feedback and a open heart surgery in order to really kind of get to the other side. But in so many ways, that's what happened for you. So, you know, you have had such an interesting history and story. I think we could talk for hours and hours, but I don't want to lose focus on Kiva because that's where you are now. And there's such a great story with Kiva, both your own personal story, why you chose it, and then what Kiva is all about. Yeah. So Kiva is an international nonprofit that has a mission to increase financial inclusion around the world, essentially to make sure that every person around the world has access to capital, to finances. There are 1.7 billion people who are unbanked around the world, meaning they don't have access to a bank account. Uh, and there are many more billions who are underserved, who may have access to some kind of banking facility, but it's not priced appropriately for them or just doesn't make sense. So the mission is one of helping people. And yeah. unlike a donation, when you come to Kiva, lenders give a a 0% interest loan. So they give a loan to someone they can pick specifically the person they want to give the loan to, or they can pick a, a broad cause or area like agriculture. Our borrowers are in 77 countries, including the United States. And you can find someone whose story resonates with you and you can loan them money. And that money gets repaid over a period of time. And the other amazing thing about Kiva, in addition to being able to pick exactly where you want your money to go to. All the funds that go into a loan go directly to that person. We ask you separately for a donation to the organization. So in addition to picking exactly where the funds go, there's a because it's a loan, there's a multiplier effect. So if you put in $100 today over the course of four or five years, that's $600 worth of lending. So that money gets recirculated. It comes back and it gets recirculated. Our historical repayment rates are 96%. So not all of your money will come back, but a lot of it does. And when it does, it gets reused or it can be reused if you want. Well, a 96% repayment of loans is an extraordinary number, right? I mean, it's just an extraordinary number. At the same time, you are fundamentally and dramatically improving people's lives. That's right. So we have within our team, we have a group that focuses on risk in the same way you'd think any bank would that deals with loans. So we look at the risk profile of a loan, but we also look at the impact level. So we have an impact team that looks at mm. how much will this loan improve this person's life? Obviously, it's an approximation. We don't know exactly how much. And we measure impact on a one to 10 scale, with 10 being the biggest impact. And as you might think, the bigger the impact maybe the higher the risk. And so we've been able to get this 96% repayment rate with an impact score of somewhere around 6.8, something like that out of 10. So we're really trying to get money to people who need it the most and who could benefit the most from it. And in some cases, some of these loans are $100 or $500. They're going to people around the world where the dollar goes a lot further than it would in the United States. So that, that's what Kiva does. It's a great mission. And an organization that's been around since 2005. And the mechanics of the business, at least the core part of the business, are a marketplace. 
So we have a group of borrowers who need money, and we have a group of lenders who are interested in giving money. And the website, Kiva.org, is a little bit of a matchmaking service in, in the way that StubHub uh, is, or the Vivino Wine Marketplace is, or eBay is. So that piece of it, using technology, a consumer internet marketplace, fit with my background. But the reason I went to Kiva had a lot to do with this work that I did in 2019 and 2020, where I, I tried to think about what I wanted to do and what was going to drive my happiness. And in addition to the work I did on positive intelligence, there's another program I did with NYPO called Reboot that really had you focus on my personal mission, my personal values. And out of that exercise, I came out with a very clear objective that the, the next place I want to work, I want it to be the place that improves people's lives or improves the state of the planet. And I want to work with people that I respect and can learn from. So last summer, that's what I decided I was going to do next because I didn't want to go back into an industry that I didn't really care about, like wine or ticketing or live events. So I started focusing on areas that I was interested in, specifically fitness, nutrition, sustainability, all with the idea of helping improve people's lives. And that's when I got a call from Andre Haddad, who's on the board at Turo and a good friend from eBay. Sorry, he's on the board. At, he runs a company called Turo, but on the board of, of Kiva. And he he asked me about potentially joining the board of Kiva. I said, oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's purpose is there. Yeah, it seems to make sense. So I started talking to him and Juliana, our board chair. And then after a couple of months of that, they said, well, actually, our, our CEO has decided he wants to leave. Would you be interested in the CEO role? And at that point, I said, oh, I wasn't thinking about nonprofit. Like this is a little different than what I've done. Let me think about it. And so I spent the Christmas holiday thinking about it with my wife and ultimately said, well, you know, this, this checks the boxes that I want to check. The fact that it's a nonprofit it's different than what I've done. You know, just because it wasn't exactly what I wanted doesn't mean that it won't make sense. And so I spent the next couple of months talking to the board about the role and thinking about it. And and ultimately, we decided to do it. And I started in April. Fantastic. And how has it been so far? It's been really great. Everyone asks the same question, what surprises have there been? And most of the surprises hmm. have been really positive. I offered in this Zoom distant world where our employees are kind of spread throughout the United States and, and in three other countries to interview or, or meet with anyone who wanted to for a half hour, and specifically to understand from them, well, what are the top three things that are going well at Kiva and what are the top three things they need fixing? And so I spoke to about 84 of our 145 employees uh, in that process. And to a person, when they spoke about what was working well at Kiva, they said, some combination of mission, people, and culture. The broad mm -hmm. explanation being that everyone comes to Kiva because they're committed to our mission, our mission of financial inclusion. That means we can attract really great people. And those people are really focused on being collaborative and solving problems. And that creates a really positive culture. So out of 84 people, I got 90 mentions of some combination wow. of those three. Obviously not everything is perfect, but that part of it I think is really good. And also, I didn't have a chance to really interview any of the employees before I started. I really only interviewed with the board and the CEO. So it was a very nice and positive <laughs> surprise. Mm. And I think, as, as you both know, if you have a positive culture to begin with, it's a lot easier to get things done than if you have to change a negative culture. 
Chris, you have had such an interesting path and an interesting journey. And like most of us, an imperfectly perfect journey. And <laughs> if you could go back in time and just whisper some words of wisdom in the little Christo's ear, what would you, what would you have to tell him? The irony is that I do have a an earlier version of myself. Uh, they're, they're called my sons. Um, <laughs> they're both teenagers. And I've tried whispering this to both of them, not with any success that I can see. But I, I think the thing that I would say is focus less on these specific objectives you're trying to achieve and more on understanding yourself mm. and and understanding the people that you work with. Because ultimately being a successful leader isn't about being the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. It's really about being the person who can be smart enough, but also understand and motivate the people that you work with. And it's having that balance. That's important. It's not just focusing on the academics or the objective criteria. Well, that's beautiful. And they may not be acting like it's it's sinking in, but my suspicion is there's somewhere in the recesses of their brains that it's probably right. <laughs> sinking in somewhere. Okay. Well, and I would imagine another gift that you have given your sons is you have modeled that for them. You know, I don't know how much they know the details of everything, but you really have modeled for them this journey of striving for perfection to much more of embracing the imperfection as gifts. I hope so. You never know. I think <laughs> teenage years are difficult. I think they are for many people. So I think the jury is still out. We'll have to wait a few years to see how it turns well, out. Well, we'll have you back on in a couple of years and you can report back <laughs> <laughs> what's going with them. That would be great. Chris, this has just been such a delight to have you on today. And I really appreciate hearing about your journey and your story and just your vulnerability and authenticity and really just letting us, you know, see behind the the curtain a little bit. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Anne. Okay. It's great to see you again, Sherry. Thank you so much. And and I appreciate you guys asking and, and being interested. Awesome. And that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post to your own social media. And if you've not yet had a chance to check out our brand new website, flowingeastandwest.com, hop on over and take a look. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.